This is Indire. I'm Allison Burton. And I'm Astra Pearson. This week is the continuation of uh, the first part of our Charles Manson saga. Last week, Astra talked some about Charles Manson's upbringing and this time starting the Manson family. So if you haven't listened to that already, you should go back and listen to this. Listen to that one before continuing on. So this week, we are going to talk about the trial stuff, the legal stuff, as it were. Um, and up to this point, like, the Manson trial was the most publicized and the longest criminal trial in American history. The Manson jury was actually sequestered for 225 days. Oh my god. most of a year. It was over Christmas. It was like, that's, I think it was about eight months. Could you just, like, imagine missing eight months of your life for this crazy, like, short guy? To yeah. To, to watch these, like, disgusting, murderous hippies yeah. in court. And, like, the, the Manson other unindicted members of the Manson family, like, slept outside the courthouse. So, like, and then they, like, packed every day. And then, like, the jurors were just under, like, constant security because they were worried with what the Manson family was going to do. It was crazy. I mean, I would be. Like, we talked Very about last time reasonable. how, like, the level of violence going on in these crimes. Yeah, so since the Manson trial was so long, um, as, you know, as upcoming of a brilliant legal mind as I am, um, even I can't cover 225 days worth of trial in 45 minutes, um, so I'm just going to kind of skip around to the cool stuff. And get get us the good stuff. So Charles Manson really wanted to represent himself, of course. Which, you know, naturally, a for a hippie, Ted Bundy action in here. Um, this not, would have been pre Ted Bundy. Yeah, the, so the OG. setting an amazing precedent. Setting a good precedent. Um, and so he had a, a choice quote for the judge when he was trying to argue that he should have the right to represent himself. He said, "Did not wish to be played with in this matter," um, and that's what he figured. The lawyer would do because obviously the establishment everyone is conspiring against him. Yeah, well, it's Charlie, all that. Um, and so we have a saying in the in the legal community that only a fool has himself for a lawyer. Um, <laughs> that's just a highly dumb thing to do, especially so like coming from someone who's in law school. The law is very stupid and complicated, so trying to understand it on a what was it, a 10th grade maybe education that Charles Manson had? Well, well and I wouldn't call, like, the gr- growing up in reform like, schools an education. education right? um, he said that he knew it wasn't wise to represent himself, but he felt like he had to. Um, so I don't get that about these guys, because it's almost like their instinct for self-preservation is overridden by their, like, pure arrogance, yeah. you know? Like, you'd think that, um, you know, he was a wily guy. I don't know sure. that I would say he was, like, a genius, but he was he was crafty. He was very clever. Definitely. And But, you know, he had to know that he would probably end up back in prison. Many of the choices that he made seemed like that was where he was Right, we talked be. about that last like, time. Yeah. Like, um, And so I just wanted to, with that, I just wanted to talk a little bit about... Charles Manson's concerns that a lawyer would play with him. Okay. Um, and so I just take professional responsibility. I've been really, I've been just making Astra's life so exciting, telling her <laughs> all about all about the wonders of the 
the ABA model rules and professional responsibility and all the intricacies that come with those. And one of the biggest, most important rules is that you have to represent your client with competence and diligence are the adjectives that the ABA ascribes to that. And so if, if a lawyer were to have played with Charles Manson in this matter, the lawyer would have gotten likely punished. Hey, that, that, would, <laughs> that would make them a bad, a bad lawyer. lawyer. So Char- Charles Manson could have sued them for malpractice, or the bar could have like suspended their license or even taken it away. So Charles, so and that just sort of I think showed the dog all you needed to about Charles Manson's ability to understand the law that he thought a lawyer would have done that. Yeah. And so while Manson was in prison, a lot of lawyers went to jail to offer their services to him. So mm. he sort of had his pick of the California Defense Association, um, which I think is super interesting. And granted, this was the seventies, so yeah. it was a different. But I, I have to imagine, and I'm wondering what you think of this, is like, I think a lot of the defense bar maybe saw this as a way to make their career and like a, a thing they could do to get their name out there. Yeah, um, I think that, I mean, I think that a lot of a lot of people kind of look at the Manson family as like when these types of true crime cases became really, really big. I mean, you said it was the longest criminal yeah. trial and so I think that a lot of um, California lawyers probably did kind of sense that this could potentially, like, turn into a really big thing for me. Yeah. Um, and this it could be an industry. To, definitely. It brings me back to the O.J. trial where, um, like, Kardashian and Ethne Bailey and all of those people are going to be in, like, in the history books forever. Right. With this. I mean, at this point, you know, our, I feel like defense lawyers aren't, like, aren't like household names but i feel like going forward that starts to become more and more the case i agree um so i guess it is my tips to any future cult leaders out there is that if you're gonna start a cult just you know recruit a lawyer you know like just uh, just for safety reasons if you're gonna get sent to jail you're gonna ever tell your followers to cover your bases cover your bases get a lawyer like you have enough of the you have enough of other archetypes of people. You might as well add a lawyer in the mix. And and I guarantee there will be someone out there who will take your money no matter what you're doing on your creepy farm in the middle Guaranteed. of nowhere. Um, so ultimately, the judge did not let me represent What? I know. I know we're all shocked. Um, and so typically, I guess typically you do have the, almost always you have the ability to represent yourself. If you wanted to go rob a bank today, and then rep- represent yourself in court. Usually, you're well within your rights to do that, but um, the judge figured this was such a big, important trial that it, w- it would be likely, it would open an avenue for appeal for right. Manson to, to let him do that. And it's like, so I think the judge made the right call there. I think also probably look, he looked at Charles Manson's record and was like, okay, this is a guy who has been in and out of the legal system his entire life, you know, do I really think that he is capable of kind of representing himself, or does his history kind of show that, like... Preclude him from... Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So it was never stipulated to at trial that Manson expressly ordered the murders. It was never... That was never a, a point that the defense case did, even though there was 
significantly mixed testimony about whether Manson said, hey, go murder those people, or if the women who were with him just thought that he wanted to. He was like, they felt it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so Manson, Leslie Van Houten, Susan Atkins, and Patricia Krenwinkel were tried as co-defendants. Um, Tex Watson, who we talked about significantly last time, was tried separately, and there was some stuff where he was in a different state, and they had to mess with extradition. And I, so I think ideally, um, Julia Olsen would have liked to have tried them all together, but they just they couldn't wait for Tex to get back, um, which I think would have made it for a much more interesting trial if it was not just Manson with the girls, you know? Right. But I think that would have, having another man there, especially out through the lens of the 70s, would have added an interesting extra dynamic to it where the girls maybe wouldn't have come off as so sympathetic. Right, because the hierarchy, I think, would have, instead of it being like, the hierarchy being like Manson and then the women, it was more like Manson and then Tex and then the women. And it's definitely like a different, different different angle. Interplay between those levels, those levels of the pyramid and uh, who was in, who was actually involved there. There was a little bit um, with the LaBianca murders where, you know, Tex has this entirely different yeah. account of, um, you know, in Charlie's second. Yeah, yeah, like kind of inserting himself yeah. into the narrative of what happened that night, whereas Manson's like, no, I went in, I did this myself. Now, another tip for our, our criminal listeners don't, if you're charged for, don't put yourself in another murder scene. Yeah, you say, no, I was in the car the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> Better even I wasn't even there. I don't I don't know Charles Manson and I certainly didn't murder anybody for him. Um okay, so obviously Linda Kasabian was also at this scene. Um but she ended up being one of the most important witnesses at the trial. And she was offered immunity in exchange for her testimony. So she wasn't charged with um the crimes, basically. Mm. And that's interesting because so Kasabian says she was the she drove there and there was some a part in Julio's book where she where he mentioned potentially Linda was just there because she she was the one that had a driver's license. She was the one who knew how to drive so she right. kind of got to be the getaway driver by default. Um and that and that maybe she only stabbed one of the people that were already dead at the tape residence. And so those were the sort of extent of her crimes. So she was really, really who Julio's wanted. Right. Could could we also say though? Just I'm just thinking about this right now that like he maybe shaped that narrative around her yes. after the fact because he was like he needed someone to flip. Yes. And so, so th- that's the thing about this. I forget. I mean, obviously it doesn't add up to like you know ordering the murders of a bunch of people and all the stuff that Manson did. But like I can't stand this guy. How he like yes. kind of has manipulated this whole narrative. This single man. And, and no, and I heavily agree with you, and that's something I wanted to talk about. It's like, so in professional responsibility, we learn about how it is not permissible for an attorney to get the literary rights to a case that they're representing someone in until after the case is wrapped up. And that's for a defense attorney, obviously. Right. And that's when the person, the, the lawyer buys the rights to that, and it's a fair business dealing between two people, and the, the client has consulted another lawyer to make sure they're not getting screwed. 
but and so I just don't even know where that's supposed to come in when it's a prosecutor and they're representing everybody. And like they're supposed to be representing the whole state. Right. And so I think that's so ethically messy and gross. And I and like the book was well written, if if Bugliosi even wrote it. Like I it seems like the kind of a ghost written type book. Well, and the fact that, like, I don't know about you, but the the fact, you know, Helter Skelter is one of the, those books that's on every list of, like, you know, ten true crime books you yeah. have to read. And, and I didn't even know until, like, I listened to some podcast a couple years ago that he was the prosecutor. Like, yeah. it just blows my mind. And like you said, it's so ethically unsound mm. and, and wrong, in my opinion. And I'm almost sure that a thought had crossed Bugliosi's mind during this time. It's like, wow, this would make a really, really good book. And that's such oh a problem. Oh my gosh, yeah. That's such a problem. Um, I don't know. And it might it might be legally okay. It might be a different rule for prosecutors, but if a defense attorney were to have done that when Manson couldn't agree... Oh, yeah. No, it would be... I mean, and, you know, prosecutors, I feel like, so state prosecutors are supposed to be like even more like kind of held yeah. up to the the, the standard some special rules because they're representing the state. So he did. So the DA's office gave Kazavian immunity. Didn't go to jail. She testified. She she was really the prosecution's big big witness for how mad do you think Manson was? When uh, they announced her as a as a witness. I think, I think he was fuming, but then again, maybe, and this is the thought I had just now, maybe he was like, okay, I've indoctrinated this girl well enough that she's not actually going to... Yeah, maybe he was so arrogant that he thought that, that he like... He didn't think she was yeah. going to say anything bad about him. That sounds actually... that. That's probably... Yeah. <laughs> knowing what we know about Manson, that's probably what happened. The next thing that I wanted to bring up is President Nixon actually commented and said... Manson is guilty, basically. Um, and that is a that's a big thing. Yeah. That's um Are presidents supposed to do that? And so that's a, you know, that's um something that each individual I don't think they should. Other people disagree about maybe if that's permissible or not. Um, but it made the defense really grabbed onto that and was like, This there's no way we're gonna get fair trials, like you right. need to miss trial right now. Um, and the, the judge pulled the jury and was like, can you still be objective? And the whole jury was like, oh, heck yeah, we're good. Like, we're good. We're that good. always cracks me up. <laughs> like, guy, can you? And, can, guys. And I just like, is there ever a time when someone's going to be like, can we be objective on this? And I'm going to be like, no. No. <laughs> of course no one's going to say that. That's so no, stupid. That's so stupid. Um, and so, so one thing mentioned in the book that I thought was a really interesting take on jury science, which is something lawyers will study forever to be really, really good at. Well, Allison, I've watched, I've watched, watched the lawyer shows. Oh, no, I, good. good. It's a a bunch of people stand around a whiteboard, and they put all the pictures of the jury up, and they're like, she's gonna crack. She's gonna, she's (laughs) gonna be for us. Yeah. Um, is that, so, so the jury actually, they, Bugliosi hypothesized that the jury was actually kind of mad that Nixon said that because they feel like he had taken their job and that the, the jury was like, huh. yeah, we're the ones. Like, this is our civic duty to decide if someone's guilty or innocent. Nobody else gets to say that. It's our job. I think that might be giving a little too much credit. Yeah. But Especially after they've been locked in a hotel for so long. 
that's the thing. If I if if a judge asked me, are you still able to be objective after hearing this? I would immediately be like, nope, nope, because I wanted to go home. <laughs> exactly. Um, have you? I've never been called for jury duty, and I think one of the most disappointing things about being a law student is I don't ever think I'd be able to. Like, unless it's like a civil, I don't think I, I don't think a lawyer would ever put me on the jury. I don't. So so. Do you think that a lawyer would ever put me on a jury? Interesting. Maybe. I don't know. It depends on what it would be for. I think it would have to be for something really boring because I am yeah. a very opinionated person. Yeah. yeah, I could see you being the jury foreman though. I can see that for you. Uh, dude, that would be such a power trip for me. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah. I would like go 12 angry men all over that shit and be like, Hell we yeah. must. We, no, I, and honestly, being able to say, find the defendant not guilty and having the trial back. Everyone is yeah, having to like keep a straight hand. face. Like yeah. Yeah. I think that would rule the lifetime. Plus the book deal after. The I, I would really deal. like that. Yeah. yeah. Jury people aren't um aren't bound by the ABA models of professional responsibility, so you have no problems getting those Isn't that that's like a whole episode on its own. I could talk about juries for for yes. and ethics for a very long time. Um, okay, so the next fun thing, and less fun, honestly, less less legally interesting, is that Manson straight up tried to attack the judge. Oh my god. He, he... <laughs> I didn't know that. No. Um, so he was sitting at the defense table, and obviously Manson was not mentally all there, we'll say. Um, and so he had sharpened a pencil. Oh my god. And he leapt over the defense table, and... He wasn't, like... Restrained? No, not up to that point. Nope. Um, so he leapt over the defense table and came at the judge with some sort of implement that he had sharpened. Um, and obviously there is, you know, courtroom security that was like, nope, that's, you can't do that. Um, but that led to him being put in a cell watching the trial on CCTV or like, oh, so he couldn't be there. Yeah, or, and then like, after that, some I mean, he, he would come in and out. Like, he was maybe there in, in, in like, a cell the next day. Um, but that led to a sort of string of him and the girls being really, really disruptive during the trial. And they would start chanting stuff, or they would start screaming at the judge or the, the prosecution. And so getting held in contempt a whole bunch and having to watch the trial from their cells and all that. And actually, so... Watched the trial of the Chicago Seven and yeah. how that crazy judge held literally everyone in contempt at least five or six times for like looking at him the yeah. wrong way. Um, so this was maybe a little better because it was actually like the things that you might want to hold someone in contempt for, but also every every lawyer at the trial was held in contempt at least once. Oh my too. god! So so it was definitely a. Interesting trial full of ups and downs. So was Bugliosi held in contempt? Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was for something like the... the so Manson's actual attorney was really, really famous for just wasting a fucking bunch of time. Like, that was his big defense strategy was just mm-hmm. to waste everybody's time. As you might have been able to guess with a 225-day-long trial. So the, the other so Manson's attorney would just object to like every question without grounds and stuff like that. I think right. he was kind of 
probably lost probably it. Probably lost his cool a little bit. Um, and, and yeah, he's started. never struck me as a super even-tempered guy. Yeah, and so I think probably there was just a fight with female lawyers that wound them up both in contempt. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a that's a big thing about that a lot of people are like, oh, I should be a lawyer because I love to argue. And it's actually, you get in trouble if you argue with the, if you, like, argue sassily with the other side. You have to argue with, like, legal brief logic and reasoning and that's not as much fun as just like getting in a spirited debate with your with your friends right unfortunately so you know so this one is actually really bonkers this was insane for me to read as a law student i didn't we didn't know what to make of this so the prosecution presented 22 weeks of evidence in their up for their case in chief they they laid up their case for 22 weeks and that included Kazabian's testimony and testimony of some other some expert witnesses about evidence and that's you know that's reasonable i feel like for a murder trial of this magnitude uh and then after the prosecution wraps it's supposed to be the defense's turn right but the defense team was like the defense rests. They put on no case. They put on they put on no case in chief. Like what? Exactly. Exactly. So this is like this is a legal strategy that does make sense sometimes. Where it's like if if you say that you you and I right now, I was accused of robbing a bank, but like we have this recording. You're sitting here telling. You're sitting here. You alibi me. Uh, the the defense puts on the prosecution puts on its case against me. I just don't put on it. It's the prosecution's failed to p- prove it. If the prosecution has failed to prove the case, there's no reason for the defense to put on a oh, trial. There's okay. Yeah. So like the the burden. No, no, no. Um, I get I get you. The 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 burden of proof is on the prosecution. Yeah. And so if they haven't met that, the why defense, go through all the exactly. trouble of yeah? But like. If you have 22 weeks of evidence, there's... To, to the, just be like, yeah, we're good. Yeah, there's the argument that a reasonable jury is going to find you guilty if you have 22 weeks of evidence. Right, just by sheer... I mean, going back to jury science, if your people are sitting there and listening, yeah. even if they're not remembering the exact contents of the evidence itself, like the, the fact that there is this constant barrage yeah. that they are being met with, they're... Yeah, probably going to be like, that guy's guilty. So to not refute that just at all. Any part of it. Is insane. It's such a bold thing to do. And and I almost, and so I would have gotten it if it was Manson, you know, because he's, as we said, a little, a little bit in need of psychiatric help. Um, and I don't say that to be derogatory because generally was. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And so I kind of would have been it if it was that. But then... Manson had this kind of hold over all of the girls' defense attorneys, too, Yeah, is the thing. It's so, like, someone, and honestly, I'm surprised that didn't end up being a bigger thing on appeal, because someone of the girls' defense attorneys should have said, no, I'm representing Susan Atkins, not Charles Manson. Right. I'm putting on the defense. But they didn't. Yeah, it's almost like he drew them in. Like yeah, and I and that so I think that's just wild, and I think and I honestly, I this more legally sound thing to do in my opinion would have been to try the girls and to try the girls together, sure, but Manson should have been tried separately. I think the, the girls would have gotten a much fairer trial. 
absolutely. That had happened. Um, so yeah, the women didn't present a case either. Um, but they and, and so that that was it. The defense arrested. Oh, I actually didn't know that. I thought that they had they at least like had some kind of defense. Yeah. And so after that, the jury deliberates and obviously as as we all would have guessed, um, they were found guilty of the first degree murder, um, seven of uh, the seven, the five people at the Tate House and Rosemary and you know, La Bianca. So after the conviction came the penalty phase of the trial, and that is basically um, if there's anything else, if there's anything else that either side wants to say in regards to how long someone could be in jail, or if they should get the death penalty, and that would be a place where people's mental health would come into play, any sort of mitigating mm-hmm. circumstances, like, you know, being brainwashed by a cult leader, stuff like that, that would be the place to mention it, um, and so this is the first place that the the defense says anything is the first during the penalty phase of the trial, um, and that's and a, a big part of what they say is so Manson has his hold on the defense table in a way, and what the girls do is they tell the judge that it was not Manson at all; it was all them. And they wanted to, they did it to try and make it look like a copycat murder to get Bobby Beausoleil, who you mentioned last week, out of prison. And that's why they, they say that's, when they testify, that's why they say they did it. Right. Sure. And so that's the first time any, they say anything, which is, I don't know, that seems like a stupid defense strategy to me. Um, just being like, hey, if you, if you put 22 weeks of evidence on about why Manson tricked us all into doing this, then, no, it was, But what if he did it? But, like, what if he did it? <laughs> not how that works, guys. Um, also, like, w- their defense attorneys are awful. Very bad. They're like, yeah, girls, that sounds good. Oh, good. Um, like, aren't the, the defense attorneys are supposed to be helping yes. the individual women? And that's, and so that's a really difficult part of it is because they are, and that's their job. They're supposed to zealously advocate for their client is the language. But then, like, you're also supposed to do what your client wants you to do. Right. Like, if there's ever, like, an offer for your client that you're, like, this is a good offer. This is great. This is the best we're going to get. The client says, no, no, no. No, I'm sorry. You have to say no. So, like, an example that's been used in school is, like, you get a $100 million settlement offer. And you're like, client, this is amazing. This is going to set you up for life. Take this. The client says, no. You got to say no. And then the next week they come back and it's like, yeah, here's a hundred dollars. And the client's like, you know, I'm ready for it to be done. Take it. Like, oh my God. Take it. Like, I could never see that further evidence that I don't want to be a towards attorney. That would be literally so painful. Um, Yeah. So after the sentencing part of the trial where all the the more evidence was presented about how long they should spend in jail, the jury did end up sentencing them to death. Um, and so some all of them? All of them. All four were sentenced to death, which is, honestly, I was surprised that four women in the 70s got the death penalty. That seems like an un-70s-like thing to do, but, you know, I guess if you murder seven people... Well, and if you murder seven people and one of them is, like, a beloved, sort of yeah. gorgeous, young, pregnant young actress... That kind of, that femininity kind of overrules 
femininity. So, but something interesting, they were all sentenced to death, but in 1972, the California Supreme Court briefly said that the death penalty was actually unconstitutional, which is, you know. And California's gone back and forth on this. They we, we talked about this a little bit with um, the Menendez brothers. Yeah, um, and so so that put uh, like a moratorium on, on all the executions, and nobody was going to be executed. It's unconstitutional, so that overrid their death penalties. Um, and because there is uh, this clause in the Constitution about no ex post facto laws, which is after the fact, since their death penalties were canceled, when the death penalty came back in 1976, they couldn't agree they couldn't them agree on the death, death penalty. penalty. Yeah. Um, which is, that was so interesting to me, where you think, like, oh no, I, I, it's such a complicated, death penalty jurisprudence is such a complicated, interesting thing, where it's like, so who knows? Well, who may, knows maybe maybe we don't go back and forth yeah, on something as know, big as the death penalty. You, just, you could just pick. Just pick. You could. So after that, they got you know they weren't no longer subject to death penalty type of bills. So it was just kind of normal prison life for them. They got parole hearings every once in a while, and continuously parole was denied. Um, long ago. As shockingly few years ago. Because I was sort of you always sort of like to think that these things happened seventy billion years ago. And yeah, like or months. I would think like, you know, twenty ten. Yeah. Something. something like that. But no, it was Yeah. Like Donald Trump was president when Manson died. That that just shows how little I've been present for the past like it's six years. Honestly, um just a couple of more interesting things about the Manson trial was that Manson one day came in and he had carved an X right in between the eyebrows, like right on that bridge of the nose area. Yeah, which is sort of famous. I think he, yeah, I think he did it with drew it on at first and then at some point cut it into his skin. Yeah, which is just like, and I'm obviously you know cult leader murderer. That is one of the more unsettling things that he's done. I, I think, like... The so, like, self-mutilation kind of crosses another crosses line. Crosses a boundary. And, um... Didn't he get all the girls to do it, too? He got all the girls to do it, too. And it was... So Manson, as you mentioned last week, he was Jesus Christ. He was the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And that was his mark. Of, if, if you had the X carved in your forehead, you're, you're safe. Didn't he also later turn it into a swastika? And he did also later turn it into a swastika. Cool. Manson. Um, I mean, this is a like purely like id-driven guy who is just gonna do whatever is the most like inflammatory yeah. at any given moment. I think that's so impressive. Don't you think that like dying in prison in a way is like what he always wanted? I do. You know, like he had people writing to him. The whole time he got married, at least once, possibly twice. And, and then, like, I, something that Julius mentioned afterwards of his book that I didn't have a ton of time to, to felt like I didn't feel like I had enough time to get into is that like Squeaky from and some of the other unindicted Manson family members like continue to call him their Jesus Christ and like worship him 
Yeah. It took the name it died. So his hold was deep if he could keep it from prison. Yeah, definitely. And you know who didn't, though? Tex Watson. I'm pretty sure found Jesus. Interesting. Actually, that. I don't know if he's still alive or not. But um, I think that that kind of became his his thing was like, yeah, I did all those terrible things, but like I found God, you know, yeah. and which always kind of infuriates me because like saying that you found God does not like erase the kind of things yeah. that you've done, and so it's a kind of way of like apolog like being penitent, quote unquote, without actually like uh, apologizing and like being held accountable. Yeah. And it's like, I think it's that thing of, it's that thing of people who are religious feel like their morality comes from their religion. And if that's what you need to have a moral compass, I think you know, great. But also, moral compasses should exist without that. Right, exactly. You should have just always known it was bad to murder a bunch of people. Okay, so to wrap this up, I'm going to talk a little bit about the sort of theories and scenarios surrounding these crimes. And so the murders and murders were super interesting because normally when you, if you've all watched Law and Order Special Victims Unit, you, normally it is the police that do the investigatory heavy lifting, as it were. It's like the police do all of it, and then when there is a case's worth of evidence, they bring it over to the district attorney's office. But here that is straight up not true. There was a couple of really important pieces of evidence that were found, like, I think like a 10-year-old, a couple of 10-year-old kids found some of the bloody clothes that they had shed after the murder. And then like someone, like a reporter found one of the victim's wallets and stuff like that. So so a lot of these alternate theories Astro's about to talk about are theories that Buglio, like that Bugliosi had or that the the police had, but then they couldn't really find any evidence. They were just like, that would make sense. And then a couple of theories that just like the general public had thought of. Um, so people really did not know what to make of this. And I think a, a cult... I think still don't really know what to make of it. Like a murderous cult was sort of last on the theory list. And then that was the one that turned out to be true. Right. Well, yes, to a certain, to a certain extent, it's interesting, right? So... I want to talk about Helter Skelter. Mm-hmm. First of all, when reading the Wikipedia page for the that kind of lays this all out, um, it describes Helter Skelter as a scenario that kind of is the um, reason for these murders put forth by Prosecutor mm-hmm. Vincent Bugliosi at trial and also in his book <laughs> called Helter Skelter. <laughs> so... That is a little bit of a red flag, in my opinion. Um, so, Helter Skelter is largely based on the testimony of Paul Watkins. So, kind of similar to Linda Kasabian, it's kind of, you kind of have to think yeah. a little bit about, like, like, interesting that, you know, this this member of the family pops up and gives Bugliosi all this information that he needs when he's getting, like, totally different stories yeah. from different, other different members of the family. So, um, so essentially, according to Paul Watkins, he and Manson, uh, they visited an acquaintance who played for them the Beatles album, The Beatles. Apparently at this point, Manson became really obsessed with, with the album. And, um, particularly one song in particular, you can probably guess what the name is. So apparently Manson had been saying that uh, racial tensions between the black community and the white community were about to erupt, and that black Americans were going to rise up in rebellion. 
Good. And uh, Manson explained that the Beatles album explained it all in code. Yeah. And so he was like, okay, here's what we're going to do. Man, man, this is Manson. We're going to create an album. And this album is going to trigger this uprising, this race war. So black people are going to rise up and they're going to murder white people in these horrible ways. And then they're going to be met with all this retaliation. And so then it's going to create this split between racist white people and non-racist white people. Are you following me? I'm following. Because there's not really much to follow. There's not really a reason, so I'm grasping onto what I can. So basically, they're going to have an album that's going to trigger a race war. Yeah. And then was his thought, if I remember right, his thought was that the black people were going to kill off all of the white people. Yeah. But that white people were superior to black people, so to him and his family were the only white people left. Right, because because racist and non-racist white people were going to create so much infighting that they would all just be killed off by the black people and that his, his family, family would, be would, would survive. Which is so stupid. So I'm just going to pick a couple um, a couple songs from the Beatles album and kind of explain to you the... I'm excited. So um, we'll, we'll do Happiness is a Warm Gun. Significance, the Beatles are telling blacks to get guns and fight whites. Sure. Never heard that particular Beatles song, but that's why I have to imagine that's accurate. There's some lyrics. When I hold you in my arms and I feel my finger on your trigger, I know no one can do me no harm because happiness is a warm gun. Bang, bang, shoot, shoot. I don't like it. Um, and then Blackbird, the, you know, that famously was- very hardcore yeah. Beatles song. Yeah. Blackbird. Um... Blackbird singing in the dead of night, take these broken wings and learn to fly. All your life you were only waiting for this moment to arise meant the black man is going to arise and overthrow the white man. Sure. So you can see that kind of like how, what kind of nonsense this is. Just pure and utter. And I think I said this last week, imagine being the Beatles. And just being like, guys, we're just yeah. trying to write some yeah, a bunch pop of songs, man. <laughs> the like, British dudes on LSD all the time who are like, oh. Um, Oh, that's not what we meant. And so Bugliosi kind of constructed this whole theory um, based on this quote-unquote evidence. Sure. Um, But as we talked about last time, I I think that if you actually look at the real details of the murders, Manson was just a regular old racist who at a very, like, at at a time where sort of there were a lot of racial tensions, especially in yes. California and the Los Angeles area, decided, oh, I'm going to exploit them, and I'm going to, like, try to pin this on Black Panthers, you know, in order to, like, get a- get away with it, yeah. right? So, like, in my opinion, Bugliosi took something that was really not actually there and mm-hmm. kind of used it as this whole, like... To try and make the case of a book. And also fed into this whole idea of Manson as this, like, yeah. you know, had this crazy, like, plan, and he was, like, this mastermind leader who was, like, really pulling all the strings, because he needed a way to, 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 like, connect Manson and, and, like, create a motive for him rather than this man just sowing chaos through his, his people. And I also, I want to read a little, just a little quote from a police investigator, uh, Everything in Vince Bugliosi's book is wrong. Oh, no. I was the lead investigator on the case. Bugliosi didn't solve it. Nobody trusted him. I love that. 
So the Who knows? Yeah. I love that it turned into just truly a, like, dick measuring contest. Absolutely. Nabucleus was like, I figured it out. And everybody else was like, did you? Or did you just make up a bunch of stuff? Or are you just a self-important dick? Yeah. Um, The next thing is kind of what you already talked about we talked about a little bit. Um, last time, which was when Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, Leslie Van Houten, and set, came forward and said that they um, had done the murders in order to make it appear like a copycat of what Beausoleil, Bobby Beausoleil, yeah. was in jail for, um, so he could yeah, be yeah. let out of jail. Which is like such a just a criminal minds thing to do. Like I don't know if a murder where that's ever actually happened is like someone copycatted another murder try and help out someone in jail. Like that's, I think that's a police procedural thing that's, like, made up, you know? Yeah. Um, some people have said, like, involved, said that, yes, they, they kind of believe this. Like, oh, interesting. I don't believe that it was, like, as well thought out yeah. as that. I think maybe there was some, like, after the fact, like, oh, we, like, write pig on the wall or whatever, like, we can make it look we like... We can make it look like we get closely out of prison. Yeah. And then there is also a um a theory that that Charles Watson and, and Manson um were involved in like a bad drug deal oh. and that was the reason for the Tate murders. There's so many names involved in this case. Honestly. So they say this guy, Jim Markham, not important, but believes that the murders were in response to uh when Manson had gone to Sharon Tate's house, mm-hmm. which we know that he did. Um, and he had gone to Sharon Tate's house to sell marijuana and cocaine, but ended up getting beaten up instead. Bobby Beausoleil later said that, like, say it said, they burn people on dope deals, Sharon Tate and that gang. Do I think that Sharon Tate and her, her, her people, her society and, and Roman Polanski were like, you know, go selling weed? No, no, I do not. Um, I think that we know that Charles Manson knew the landlord yeah. through a bunch of other people, was going on the property when he shouldn't have been. And did they probably beat him up? Yes, absolutely. And I totally believe that he, like, would have wanted a retaliation for yeah. that. Yeah. 100%. Naturally, like, as we've seen with the rest of his behavior. So also, kind of backing this up, there were a couple, like, counterculture journalists who had uncovered information that um, that someone had brought drugs to Sebring and Frykowski mm-hmm. at Tate's house a few hours before the murder. Which, you know, that I would believe. Like, rich people, like, rich people do drugs too, but... Yeah. And what, but what is interesting is that um, people kind of involved in this drug connection were murdered before the Manson mm-hmm. trial. So I think that there was kind of something else going on that yeah. didn't have anything to do with Charles Naturally. Manson. Yeah. But because of because he decided to retaliate at the Tate House because he was mad that he had been like disrespected or whatever, they were like, fuck, we gotta cover all this up so like we don't get drawn into this as yeah. well. And it's like Manson's like greasy, unwashed self. I don't think that Manson was involved in any no. kind of larger conspiracy. <laughs> I think that it just was like happenstance that um, the the like landlord guy was involved in yeah. some shady stuff and was at the Tate house and poor Sharon and those other Lost people got me. caught in the crossfire. That poor like basically to term baby. But... Oh my god. 
That's yeah. so sad. So I think that wraps it up for our Manson talk. You know what I'm proud of of this podcast, Allison, is that every week we manage to stretch the um, definition of the term fun fact. Yes, I do love that. I do think, um, in particular, the fact that you can get away with murder in, in some national parks. Is that very good? I think that's very fun, still, personally. Yeah, very. One of the funner ones. So, um, my fun fact for the fun fact corner this mm-hmm. week is, um, so we all know Ed Kemper. Yep. If you haven't watched Mindhunter on Netflix, you should watch very it. Much. It's very good. Pause this podcast now and go watch the it. The maybe most spot on casting for anyone I've ever seen. That guy that they have playing that Ed Kemper. Absolutely right? like he got the voice, he's got the height, he's was, got the like somehow they just went back in time and pulled the young yeah, Ed Kemper. It's out. really, really unsettling. Um but so my fun fact is that Ed Kemper, during his long stint in prison, yeah. um volunteered with a group called Volunteers of Bakerville, and if it's not pronounced Bakerville, I I don't care. Um, <laughs> it is now. So, Sorry, makes the rules. Yeah, that's how it's pronounced now. Um, so he volunteered with them, and one they did a lot of uh, volunteer stuff in the area, and they kind of it was a way for prisoners to get involved and to like you know give back to mm-hmm. the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the programs that they did was that they would have people read on tape cassettes to make audiobooks for the blind. Hey. Um, and so Ed Kemper spent more than 5,000 hours in a booth before a microphone in over a cor- the course of 10 years. He has more than 4 million feet of tape and several hundred books what? that he has recorded That's for this insane. program. The full list, we don't have the full list of the books that he's recorded, but I, I do have a selection. So we have the novelization of Star Wars. By George Lucas. Okay. Um, we have Flowers in the Attic by V.C. Andrews. No, that one's it. Um, we have Dune Book 4, God Emperor of Dune by hey. Frank Herbert. Great book series. Good taste. And we have Petals on the Wind also by V.C. Andrews. It's just a very small, uh, very small selection. So, um, I think there are some recordings out there if you that's, really feel the need to go listen to Ed Kemper reading you Flowers in the Attic. That's, that's goddamn incredible. And, and I don't. Just to be totally honest, is I don't need that in my brain. I just really hope that they, like, spared the poor people that they were giving these books to and didn't tell them, like, hey, um, so, yeah, I have, I have this, like, scary, creepy book for you that you requested. Uh, oh, who's the na- who's the narrator? Oh, it's a just a serial mass murderer. No, just a serial killer. Cut off his mom's head. He's like a really good volunteer. Like yeah. he, I mean, he did put in so many hours, and he said that like it was like incredibly rewarding for him. So that's my fun fact. That was incredible. Ed Kemper, unfortunately, not a girl boss, but that's messed up, and I'm shook to learn that. Yeah. I know, I don't know, I don't know why, maybe won't sleep until I hear it. Yeah, maybe, I know I'm thinking, maybe I have to listen to this a little bit. I have to listen to it. So, we are taking a little bit of a break for a few weeks, um, just for, like, Allison's going back to school, and I have have never left. 
I've never, I've never left school. Um, this grad school purgatory has its clutches in you. Yes, it does. Um, so we're going to take a break for a couple weeks. Um, we're going to come back with a new episode on Labor Day on September 6th. See you there. We'll see you there. Thank you. Bye. Bye.